This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. So the big risk, of course, is what if there is a, let's just call it in quotation marks, an anomaly with the rocket, and it starts to rapidly disassemble. Again, another <laughs> euphemism. All by itself. <laughs> yeah. Right. There is a hair trigger ability for that craft, as with any other craft, to have an escape system where the capsule would basically shoot off of the booster and get away from any explosion or anything like that. It's a solid rocket booster in the middle of the capsule that, you know, it's it's well camouflaged, but that thing will basically peel you away from the rocket at nine Gs of force, mm. probably nine plus. So the point is, if you go from, you know, a couple of Gs acceleration to nine Gs in a, in a second, if you're not in the proper configuration in your couch or crash seat, whatever you want to call it, that could really injure you. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplores.com. My guest today is fellow committed explorer and now most vertical man on Earth. Victor Fuscovo joined me in the early days of my podcast to talk about the many grand adventures he has had. He's climbed the Seven Summit Mountains, he's skied across the North and South Poles, he's dived to the deepest point in each of the five oceans. What more could there be? Give episode 11 a listen if you want to hear how all those adventures came about and what drives him to explore. Since then, however, Victor went on another grand adventure. On June 4th, 2022, he flew into space aboard a Blue Origin rocket, the same ride that William Shatner took a few months earlier. So, of course, I was delighted for him and really excited to hear all about it. So I emailed him right away with my congratulations and a plea to tell me and you all about it on this podcast. So now I invite you to a Kathy Sullivan Explorers exclusive to join the most vertical person in the world, that would be me, and the most vertical man on earth, that would be Victor, as we compare notes on exploring the twin frontiers of sea and space. It is so delightful to have you back on the podcast, Victor, after your grand spaceflight adventure. Oh, thank you. It's great to be back and such a privilege to be re-invited back for, well, hopefully you keep making stories and you keep staying interesting. I hope to do that. Absolutely. So I'm fascinated by a parallel and a contrast in our two pieces of our respective adventurous backgrounds. 
I flew in space as a member, a full crew member of the space shuttle three different times. And then you extended to me the spectacularly generous invitation to join you on a dive to the Challenger Deep. And, you know, people ask me frequently, what was the training like and what did you have to do and what did you have to know? And my answer is, I really only needed to do three things, four things. Sit still for a long time, (laughs) be good company, make some interesting observations, scientific observations, and know which button to push if you fell over dead and I had to get back to the surface. And otherwise, I was along for a glorious ride with a delightful person and we had a wonderful time together. And you're kind of the flip-flop. Because you're pilot in command of the limiting factor when we went to the Marianas Deep, and you could handle the whole submarine yourself. You had done it many times. But you were in my kind of crew role when you flew on New Shepard 21 in June. And and did you notice, by the way, it was almost exactly two years after my dive with you, your flight to space. It was almost to the day, but uh, yeah, in many respects, I I had even less to do since the entire process of the new Shepard launch was automated. There was no pilot in the capsule. I'm going to dive into that a little bit, but let's, let's roll the tape a little bit back. What made you decide to want to go fly in space? Oh my God. Well, I was three years old when Neil Armstrong landed on the moon and my father made sure that I saw it. Not that I really remember it. But I certainly remember the aftermath that I became obsessed with rockets and space flight, where all that I ever wanted for presents were astronaut helmets or little things I could walk around in that mimicked a lunar module, you know, all these other things. And it's something that always fascinated me. And I really, really wanted to become an astronaut when I was growing up. But it turned out my eyes were just terrible. And so the military path was not open to me. And so that was kind of a letdown. So then I decided I wanted to be an aerospace engineer and build the rockets to make them go up. And I went to Stanford and found out that I was okay at it, but not great. (laughs) So I decided to pursue things that were maybe more in my wheelhouse, which I discovered was finance and political science. And I really enjoyed those and had a great career using those skills. And I was able to learn how to fly on the commercial side and then, of course, dive. So we all find our own path. And eventually, I found a way to get into space. took longer than I expected. But you just have to hold on to those dreams. And hopefully, one day, circumstances will provide the opportunity. So when did you put your hat in the ring, put your deposit down? Because it been a long time waiting for many of these flights. Oh, of course. And I'd been tracking the progress of Virgin Galactic, of SpaceX, and Blue Origin. And I had made contacts in that space, pardon the pun, many years prior to them offering seats to you know non-astronauts. And SpaceX was the first to contact me a couple of years ago, and they actually offered me uh, it was so tempting, not just a flight to be a passenger, but to actually be the, the command, the mission commander as a pilot. Wow. But they said that they would train me to be that. And that just sounded like incredibly awesome. But then they told me how much I would have to pay. Uh, yes. And let's just say it was a healthy eight figures. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I, yes. So I said, so you for know. People who don't do financial math very much, that means tens of millions of dollars. Y- yes. And it was a healthy eight figure number. <laughs> and, you know, while I do well, I don't do that well. And I thought, you know, that price will probably come down. So I was unfortunately uh, having to pass on that opportunity. But I continued to explore other opportunities. And then I took down Hamish Harding, who is a British 
born person who lives in the UAE and he sells executive jets all over the world. And he knows a lot of people of the origin. And I took him down Challenger Deep. And in fact, right. he and I hold the record for the longest dive ever conducted at Challenger Deep, four hours and a quarter and the longest transect. And we we were the first team to go to the bottom of the ocean, the British American that also, and this is the punchline, went into space. So on a random Friday afternoon, about a year and a half ago, I get a call from Hamish and he just kind of says, well, hey, do you still want to go into space? I went, well, yeah, Hamish, sure. He says, well, Blue Origin might have two seats available. I'm on one of them. Do you want to be the other one? And I went, well, yeah. <laughs> and he told me how much it was. And it was, it was much, much more reasonable uh, than SpaceX. And so it was a delight where within literally 24 hours, he got me on and Blue Origin called me and we solidified the agreement. And I was contracted to go in like several months, wow. you know, like three months in West Texas. So it was like out of nowhere, I got this opportunity and it was a great adventure because then Hamish and I became the first team to ever go to the bottom of the ocean and go into space together. together. And it was British American, which is really cool. I did not know that part of the story. And that's really cool because that also completely parallels my experience of getting to the Marianas Trench. <laughs> I'm kicking along real happy. And you know, Don yep. Walsh calls up and says, hey, this guy named Victor might might get in touch with you to offer you a dive to the Challenger Deep. I don't want him to ask someone to turn him down. Would you, would you accept if he calls you? I said, well, you know, this is sounding like science fiction. So why don't you? <laughs> sure, sure, Don, whatever. And then, and then this email comes from you sort of yeah. completely out of the blue. I was, that's delightful. It does highlight the importance of personal connections and just being a good person because people like doing great activities with other great people. Yeah. And I wouldn't have gotten that call from Hamish if we hadn't had a great experience together. And, you know, when I was looking for someone to take down to Challenger Deep to be the first woman to ever go down there, I, quite frankly, I asked the community that I knew, that the Explorers Club and, of course, the inimitable Dr. Walsh and others, and the same name kept coming up, which was Dr. Kathy Sullivan is, is the person. Well, I mean, come on, you're a PhD in ocean <laughs> geology. You're an astronaut. You're a wonderful person. So it just made all the sense in the world. So it is. it does matter. Yeah. And it does matter that, that you conduct yourself and have a good reputation, and these opportunities will come to you. Yeah, because whether it's fully automated as New Shepard or it's just you know, the guy to your left has got it all. He actually doesn't have to have you there either way. There's some parts of it that you're doing as a team and some congeniality, mutual trust, getting along, all those things, are they're important. Yeah, absolutely. And you have to be a good crew member as well, because even though on the New Shepard flight, none of us was piloting the craft, we certainly could have caused a lot of issues if yes. we were not properly prepared or had an issue of some kind, and that could have ruined it for everyone as well as the launch. Yeah. So there's a lot to being a good crew member too. Yeah. So you were not three when this finally came around and that you were tracking all the space stuff. I'm curious how your your sense of the space adventure or of a space flight, how had that, how had that changed? I mean, you, you knew so much more in your adult years. You piloted airplanes, you piloted a submersible. How were those experiences influencing what you were looking forward to, if, if they were? Well, it's many different things. So many people put it in the context of, you know, which is which is cooler or what was so much different, you know, going to space or going to the bottom of the ocean. I always add a third, which is mountain climbing, which a lot oh, of people yeah. don't have exposure to that sphere because that tends to be a very insular community. But now I've had the very, very unique experience of going to the bottom of the ocean in a submersible and piloting it, of going into space, but also climbing Everest. And it's more like a triangle because those three are all wildly different. 
And in that respect, it just comes down to training. And to answer your question, I was really curious, you know, what would the training be like? Because we did have to do training to go up in the new Shepherd rocket. And it was only for several, you know, three days really intensively. And just also, I was fascinated by how they designed it, how it was built. I mean, while I'm not a degreed engineer, I've been around engineering long enough to be fascinated with how things work. And most importantly, what, 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 if, what if they go wrong? Yeah. Come on, Victor, you have an OJT in engineering well, <laughs> <laughs> on job training. Yeah. I've got a little bit of uh, you know backyard engineering experience <laughs> and all that. And I make things and build things. So that's, that's fair enough. And, uh, but you, you just want to know how everything works yeah. because if you're going to something that you know could blow up or sink or something like that, you do have a responsibility to at least have a good knowledge of how it works. Yeah. So take us out to West Texas. You launched from a place out in the middle of nowhere called Corn Ranch. Yep. I challenge my listeners to find it on Google Earth. It's hard to find, <laughs> but it's north of the small town of Van Horn. Right. Tell us about that. You go. Is there a campus you stay at out by the launch site? Is it lodging in in Van Horn? Yeah. And, and where does where is the training conducted? And when what's that like? Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. Yeah, it was really exciting for me because I was born and raised in Dallas, in Texas, and so for me it was a kind of a short hop in a in a propeller-driven plane over to Van Horn, Texas. I mean, it was like my backyard. People going, oh, how are you getting there? I'm like going, um, it'll only take me a couple hours. Yeah. So, but it basically is at Jeff Bezos Ranch. And what a lot of people don't realize about Jeff Bezos is that he is of uh, Cuban ancestry. Well, I mean, I think that's his adopted parents' name. But he was raised in his teens, I believe, on a ranch in Texas. He is, he is a cowboy. He wears cowboy boots. He loves West Texas. So the whole complex for Blue Origin in West Texas is basically his ranch. Huh. It's a big ranch, yeah. but it allows him to do private operations You know, with FAA certification. It's in the middle of nowhere, so they don't interfere with a lot of jet routes and all that type of thing. So Van Horn is a very small town, and it is basically north of there, about a 30-minute drive, you end up in this rocket complex. And it's where they refurbish the new Shepard rocket, and there's you know a high bay where they can take it apart and put it back together. But for the astronauts, there's kind of an astronaut little colony, and they designed it to mimic what things were like back in the day. I think back at uh, at Palmdale in California, where you know the right stuff was all done. Yeah. They did supersonic flight training and all that. You know, we lived in Airstream trailers that were gleaming silver. They were kind of in a concentric circle. There's a bar called the Carmen Line. You know, <laughs> it was great. Great for us. They were free drinks, and it was a really good bartender. So that was dangerous. There was a big fire pit. And so it was a very tight-knit, incredibly well-run, well-oiled machine to take care of the astronauts and their plus ones. So it was, it was a great place to go and do the training. And then, of course, when we did the training, we'd just hop in a bus and go over to the, the buildings where we would have overview of the systems, all the things we had to do for safety standpoint, and really just get to know our fellow crew members. But it was just a great experience. I mean, I look forward to going back you have a standing invitation to go back to the bar in the area if you've been on a flight. So looking forward to flying out there and seeing the new astronauts and having a drink and all that. Yeah. Just let me know when you want me to come out there as your plus one. I'd be curious. <laughs> Absolutely. So did they do any, were there any particular kind of all crew? I mean, there's seven of you guys going to fly. On that. Six. Six. Okay. Yeah. You and Hamish know each other, but otherwise right. no one knows each other. Did they organize or orchestrate any activities to kind of get you all working together and, and you learn different things about each other, chewing the fat at the bar and trying something hard together. 
Right. No, I think it, it, it didn't get as, as geeky as, you know, what you do in corporate America where you do team building exercises. I think we were all a little bit above all that. So <laughs> these are all seasoned professionals and, and experienced people. But I know that Blue Origin is very much trying to craft each astronaut crew to get along well together, but also have a lot of diversity of experiences and backgrounds. And so we had six very different individuals, but we all gelled together, I think, very, very well. So we ate our meals together. We trained together. So you were with each other yeah, quite a okay. bit. Yeah. And, and, that was, and that was great. It was interesting, though, in that we went out there and then we actually had a mission hold for two weeks. The rocket was like 99.9% .9 ready to go, but there was this one thing that bothered them. And they said, you know what? We're just going to take a timeout and we're going to lock it down. And we're like, hey, that's fine. It's inconvenient, but no, we get it. Trust me, we all get it. So we left, you know, for two weeks. But right before we left, three of us actually, we went to Guadalupe Peak, the highest mountain in Texas. And they said, hey, Victor, you know, you want to go with us? I went, hell yes. And uh, so three of us, half the crew, we did a speed climb of Guadalupe Peak in the summer heat. It was awesome. But that was a that was kind of a cool team building experience for that part of the crew, Hamish and uh, Evan Dick and I. And then we came back and just resumed two weeks later and everything went well. And are there any particular medical or psychological screening factors that they, I mean, you talked about crew congeniality and things like that. And right. It's not a zero body stress experience, but. No, it is n not at all. And we'll get into that. <laughs> yeah. It is, it is actually quite a strain on, on, the, on the human body to, uh, rocket into space and come back all within the span of 11 minutes. But uh, yeah, I think each one of us individually had to go through physical and you know mental screening. We had to get a note from our doctor that we're good to go in a freaking rocket to space, <laughs> <laughs> which, was, uh, which was a really fun conversation I had with my physician of 20 years. And she said, okay, what are you doing now? Well, I'm going to go into space. She went, I'm not surprised. Yeah. Okay, what do I need to do? And so that was all good. But uh, yeah, you could just tell really quickly. We had two young people, the, the second, I think, no, the first, uh, I think, Brazilian to go into space. We had the first Mexican woman, native-born, yeah. to go into space. We had a, a wonderful uh, African-American professional real estate guy from California. We had Hamish, the British guy. We had myself. We had Evan Dick, who was the first person to go up into New Shepard twice. Oh, wow. So that was a really cool thing. Like you, I was able to train with someone who had already been there, and that was a great asset for all of us to say, hey, how should we act? What should we yeah. do? And he gave us great advice. So was there any formal testing? Like they give you the briefings on safety systems or something. In my day, we did not have tests to pass in astronaut training. Yeah. Thank heavens. It wasn't like what you would see in the movie, The Right Stuff, where they made them go through hell and back just to qualify to go up. I think they kind of did that with the medical screening and just our own backgrounds to make sure that we were you know, good to go as a passenger yeah. on this rocket. And then during the training, yes, we did have quizzes, I'll call them. They were very perfunctory. They were quite simple, but I think that they were very smart in that they designed the whole system so it could be as easy to use and easy to go up and down in that craft as possible. And that's part of what I think we were trying to convince the engineers who worked on it, why they're doing something so valuable. It's because it's not just about building a rocket that can go up and down into space. It can't deliver satellites or anything like that, but what it is doing, it's giving great experience in human factors design, and how do you get non-astronauts in and out of space with a training program, with a cabin that they can easily interact with safely? And that's what they're doing. And that's going to be hugely important if any of the countries that are talking about large capabilities on the moon, extended presence on the moon, you're not going to build those or populate those just with people trained to the 
full height of a NASA astronaut, for example. Yeah, I would give I would give great credit to Blue Origin because right now I believe that they are the only organization that can take a normal person off the street, more or less, and within three days, go above the Kármán line. Yeah. Even SpaceX, they have multiple weeks and months of training because they're going to orbit, they're going to space station. And I understand it's a different issue, but to go right into space in th- three days of training or less, they're they're nailing that. Yeah, yeah. It, it will pay dividends. Yep. So walk us through your flight day. Oh, goodness. You went gracious. away for two weeks. You came back, probably were there for a day or two before the actual flight. Uh, three days again, we went through the full training. Okay. We, we hadn't even really started the training when they called it off. So we did the full three days of training and you know, you're just building up this anticipation. And again, I cannot compliment their training program well enough where they had a full simulator. And because the whole experience was only about 10 minutes, we were able to simulate the entire mission. I think it was like six or seven full times with full auditory experience everything except the zero G they could more or less replicate. So it just became muscle memory, how you enter the capsule, how you strap in, what you do, when, what you need to be careful of. And so by the time we actually got to the launch date, as I'm sure it was for you when you went into Challenger, you'd been through it so many times that while you're still excited and maybe slightly anxious, you know what to do. You're not confused. And with that comes a certain degree of confidence and calmness. And yeah, I mean, it was a little tough to get to sleep the night before and we were up very early and, you know, we tried not to eat or drink too much so that wouldn't distract us. And then we just went through the training of, you know, getting together, getting our flight suits on, you know, making sure we, you know, had as only the things we're allowed to have on our bodies and then getting together, getting in the truck, getting in the pre launch room you know, everybody getting psyched. It was just great. And then, you know, we drove to the rocket. We walked up the ladder. We stayed in a safe room while they fueled the rocket. So this is like a blast proof room that yeah. you're in for a while before they let you near the rocket. And then there's the very quick interval of, okay, leave the blast shelter, you know, eight stories high. And then you walk the gangplank over to the capsule. You ring a bell, you know, which seems to be traditional. Yeah. And then one, you know, in our proper order, we entered the capsule strapped in. And then I think it's really cool. Something that I've experienced now with the limiting factor in diving, when it really, really hits you that you're going to be doing something truly extraordinary is when a hatch closes. Yes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> when, when that hatch closes on the limiting factor to go down to the bottom of the ocean or a hatch closes on a rocket, you realize, okay, this is now a really cool experience you're about to have that very few people have the privilege to get to do. So <laughs> there's not a hatch when you climb, you know, Everest or something like that, but it's more leaving the tent. It's kind of the reverse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're out, you're out there anyway, but that's the, in very brief terms, what things were like uh, leading up to the actual launch. What kinds of things were you allowed to take and not allowed to take? Well, they were very strict on weight, just like in the limiting factor. Weight is always huge. And when you're flying a plane, people, I think, that don't involve themselves in these activities don't realize that weight drives so much because it's about propulsion or it's about buoyancy. And that is directly correlated to weight. So everything is weight. So they don't want to, they don't want us bringing in all this stuff on the weight that could actually upset the calculations because these are all very, very finely balanced instruments that we're in. And so, you know, they also didn't want anything that could hurt us. They didn't want someone bringing in something that could fly out of a a pocket and hit someone in the head. That would be like a bullet because I, I, I should interject at this point, the number one thing that they were doing in the training was safety and safety for a specific condition, fully automated system. So the big risk, of course, is what if there is a, let's just call it in quotation marks, an anomaly with the rocket. 
and it starts to rapidly disassemble. Again, another euphemism. <laughs> All by itself. <laughs> yeah. Right. There is a hair trigger ability for that craft, as with any other craft, to have an escape system where the capsule would basically shoot off of the booster and get away from any explosion or anything like that. It's a solid rocket booster in the middle of the capsule that, you know, it's, it's well camouflaged, but that thing will basically peel you away from the rocket at nine Gs of force, mm. probably nine plus. So the point is, if you go from, you know, a couple of Gs acceleration to nine Gs in a, in a second, if you're not in the proper configuration in your couch or crash seat, whatever you want to call it, that could really injure you. Mm -hmm. And so they were very insistent that on the ascent that you are in your seat and you're in proper position and ready for that event. And that's a big deal because you really, really could get hurt if you go into a 9G maneuver unprepared. So that was a lot of the training and that was all very, very normal. And then of course, was getting back in the seat for what became a 5G descent at one point. And if you're not in your seat when that happens, you could also get injured. So they were very, very safety conscious. And that was the major thing that we were doing our training for. And so were they training you that both by elapsed time and voice calls? I mean, if things are going smooth, there's a ground control that probably says go to unstrap or calls up you know, back, back to seats. But if you've lost comms, was right. there some kind of timer or what was, what was the backup way for you all to remember it's time to get back in the seats? Oh, there were tons of, of backup calls. Well, the, the major one, I think, for getting out was simply booster separation. And you could feel that. Yes. I mean, it was like getting a, a kick in the gut, you know, when the booster separated and it lofted you up into space and you're in zero G. Okay. Yeah. That's a good signal that, yeah, you can get out and, and float around for a while. Yeah, it's the, other, it's the other end of it that you want some warning Correct. about. Right. And there was also an audible tone for us to get back in our seats. And it was very clear, you know, they would tell us as well, but there were backups to get us back in our seats. But then, I mean, the ultimate fail safe there is when you start feeling it descending and you could feel gravity returning, you need to get in your seat because that, that, those G's on reentry were much higher than going up and they came quickly. Mm. So what was your first sense? Can you remember what bodily sensation was your first personal cue that gravity is coming back up? Yeah, it was very subtle, but you noticed because you had been floating for about three minutes looking out, you started noticing that your body started going down a little bit, almost like you're in an air current, but you knew it wasn't an air current. Yeah. And then you're like, okay, the bell's going to come shortly. And sure enough, <laughs> you know, beep, 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 get back in your seats. And then, you know, we had trained and practiced for it. Okay, go back to your seat, you strap in and, and then you start feeling that weight. The coolest thing though, for me was going up where, you know, it's a slow acceleration and the capsule's designed so cool. There's a little a little screen right in front of you, and it's showing how fast you're going. Ah. So you know you start off slow, and it builds and builds. And then the first time I've ever gone supersonic was vertically in a rocket. All right. <laughs> we we crossed one mock, and I called it out to the group. I went, "We're at Mach one." People going, "Yay!" And but then it's kept climbing. You know, Mach two, Mach three. I mean, we were just screaming through the atmosphere. And then, of course, the booster burned its propellant, and then we separated. And then before you knew it, you know, four minutes later, we're in zero G floating around. It was just amazing. What was your maximum Mach number? I think it was three point something. I, I don't recall exactly, but I know it was past Mach 3. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> Puts you up in Blackbird SR-71 uh, land. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was vertical, and it wasn't a rocket. So I still have to do supersonic in an aircraft. <laughs> so... Couple strands I want to probe with you now, but first and foremost, 
I've been bemused to watch the, the little clips that uh, Blue Origin and, and Galactic put out of people in their zero-G moments. I'm always interested to see who's using that time how. Well, we were very fortunate, as I mentioned earlier, that Evan Dick, who had already been on a New Shepard launch, was with us. So the number one question he got from all of us was, what should we do? And he was emphatic in stating, look, don't focus inside the capsule. He says it's extremely tempting to play with balls or do somersaults or take pictures or selfies while you're in zero G. He said, yes, there'll be a, you know, let's do that first, but only for like 30 seconds. Let's get that out of the way. He says, you want to look out the window. They have these big, gorgeous windows on the new Shepard. And there's a, a running story that every time that the capsule was presented to Jeff Bezos, he always said the same thing is, can you make the windows bigger? <laughs> <laughs> and the engineers would slap their foreheads and, and do their best. And, but those windows are huge. Yeah. And that was the thing that really struck me when we got into space and we unstrapped was I thought, okay, you know, I'm a pilot. I've been up pretty high. I've been like flight level, you know, 410, whatever, 41,000 feet. And this is a hundred thousand. I thought, okay, it'll be, you know, charcoal-y. It'll, it'll look like I'm like, like really, really high in a plane. No, this was materially different. The earth was below you. There was a thin layer at, of atmosphere that you could see, which you never see that in a plane. And there was black background. And there was a yellow sun to my left on a black background. I had never experienced that. I'm sure you know you have, of course. But that told you, screaming in your head, no, you are now in space and you're floating, which is a nice... <laughs> which is good. That's good corroborating evidence. <laughs> yeah, a little corroborating evidence. So, so there was that. And so for the first 30 seconds, we know we strapped out and we said, okay, we're going to get the team picture. So we did that. We got together, we huddled, and you'll see that iconic picture of the six of us in zero G. And then a couple of us did a couple of selfies with maybe something that was important to us or, you know, doing, I did a somersault. I always wanted to do that. And then I personally floated over to where William Shatner had sat in his rocket launch. Cause I wanted to sit at the same place that Will Shatner had. I mean, come on. Yeah. And then when I did that, I focused on looking outside and then I was just enraptured. I mean, I, you couldn't tear me away from the, uh, the window just because it was so extraordinary, such an amazing view to just really soak it in. And I'm talking to someone who's done it a lot more than I have, <laughs> but you, you know, there's that, what they call the overview effect where you realize that you are honest, we're living on a big spaceship. And that overview effect is screaming in your mind of, wow, uh, we live, I think on a fragile rock and we're all on it together. And why do we behave the way we do? Why do we treat it the way we do? And it really just, you know, it, it affects you more when you get back to earth, but that view and that sensation, I think is very, very real. And that's why I'm a huge proponent of people going into space if they can do it, and hopefully more people in the future as, it, as the cost comes down, because I think that overview effect could have a profound effect on humanity going forward. Yeah. I just did a podcast episode uh, the other day, a solo, about the overview effect. I mean, I think Frank White, the guy who coined it, I think he's right on with the impact and the meaning. It's just along the lines that you said, it totally changes your sense of yourself, your place, other people, the, the rest of everything. But for some reason, it always bugged me a bit. The word overview seemed to me the wrong label. It's, it's an experience of awe, yeah. unlike way beyond the scale of anything else. And, and yes, I guess that broad panorama plays into it. But there are other ways also to create senses of awe in people that remind them of the factors you just said, the commonality, the fragility of the planet, the, how together we all truly are on this earth. And gee, how come we can't figure that out Monday through Friday? Right. 
Yeah. And then I'm also blessed that I've had these other experiences, like going down to the Challenger Deep with you. That's a very different experience where you feel in many respects, how old the earth is, how ancient, how incredibly powerful, and in some respects, hostile the earth can be. It's it's totally different. It's the yin to the yang of experience the earth. And then completely 90 degrees from that is, you know, going to the summit of Everest. And I climbed it in the storm on my summit day. Oh, yay. But at least there were no people on it. But that was just a beat down and just a ferocious assault on me by mother nature and the whole thing leading up to it. And so I just have this 360 degree appreciation for the beauty of earth, the fragility of it, but also the time, almost timelessness of it, its brutality, its beauty, all these other things that I just can't fully put into words. Yeah. I feel very, very, very privileged. And, and the odd contrast between them. One level, and it's very, very clear how big and powerful the earth is, like you were saying, mm-hmm. whether you're in a storm or bobbing around the ocean. But then on the other hand, you see such like finely sculpted, there's a there's an elegance. There's a almost like a, the fine craftsmanship of a of a filigree piece of jewelry, right? With the the thin <laughs> yes. atmosphere or tendrils of dust off a dust storm. How can you be? How can you both so exquisitely embroidered at one level, and so just bulldozer powerful at another level? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It is. But uh, when people say, you know, what's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen? I I, I have to admit, it's you know, the curvature of the earth with the atmosphere looking down from space. Uh, Nothing beats that view. (laughs) Would you say an 11-minute experience, do you think it's been life-changing for you in any way? Well, yeah, I think it's a question of degree. I mean, many things that I've done in life are life-changing. You know, the first time I had an in-flight emergency in aircraft, that was (laughs) life-changing. They all affect you in different ways. But absolutely. And I think one thing I'd love to hit as well is so many people go, oh, okay, yeah, here's this guy. And, you know, he's a rich guy, wrote a check and he, you know, was a potato bag going up into space and down, you know, big deal. You know, there's a lot of other more pressing needs. Look, I get that. But what I try to convince people is that, yes, but this is like the early days of aviation. And back in the 20s, you know, people would pay $5 or $10 to go up in this new contraption called an aircraft. And that was a lot of money back then, but people did it for a five-minute ride. But what it did was it fostered innovation so that over time, as more people did it, aircraft became more safe, more cost-effective, more reliable, where now literally even the most you know common person can buy a ticket and go from Dallas to London in an evening. And they don't even think twice about it. That's where I would love for us to go with space travel, but it's not going to happen unless people are willing to write checks to help develop these rockets. And as the great line from the right stuff said, you know, you know, what made the space program run was not astronauts, it was money. <laughs> and so that's the, the, the thing that we're trying to do is to, in a way, we're kind of investors in space technology. Fabulous. So advice for people, young people trying to get in this game, either as, a, I mean, your, as you said, your path was an eagerness to be an astronaut at age and excitement about it starting at age three. Mm-hmm. There are so many paths. I'm wondering if, if the kind of advice you give for dreaming and persevering and trying that, uh, that you give to young people has changed at all from the, with the space experience now under your belt? You going to buy a second ticket like Evan Dick? <laughs> oh, well, I want to go into orbit now. I want to go into a space station. I want to do that whole experience. And I'm hoping I live long enough where I have even the remotest opportunity to go to the moon. That would be wonderful. 
but uh, and, and there and just great technological advances are happening there. Where with advances in propulsion, they're now talking it could just take a day to go to the moon with you know a nuclear propulsion rocket that they're going to be testing in the next couple of years. So many exciting things. But the advice for young people is, of course, going to space is still a rare privilege for a very very small number of people. So you have to be useful. You have to have technical skills that require a human being at extraordinary expense to go into space to do something. Now, there are going to be people, you know, artists or teachers or others that are going to get some opportunities more through a pro bono basis, and that would be great. But if you really want to increase your odds, there's going to be a high demand for people that can work and solve problems in space. And so those are going to be people with technical backgrounds like yourself. And, and then, of course, the other avenue is if you just have no technical capability whatsoever, then you're going to have to do what I did, which is to you know make some good economic resources available and then provide for investment and then buy a ride or do something else, yeah. be, be a tourist. But then at least you're contributing to the development of the technology. Well, but if you're not the engineering ilk, you know, both NASA and Blue Origin and Galactic, they need financial types to help keep the business running. They need administrative types, project planning types. I mean, it's, it's an ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah. But they're not going into space yet. So, <laughs> yeah, they may. I, I'm looking forward to the day when the year end bonus is the employee of the year gets the space ride. <laughs> That's true. Well, I actually, I, I had a tour of the Blue Origin facility up in Washington state and the young individual that I was with was a, a former Navy submarine guy, nuclear engineer, sharp as a whip, doing a lot of engineering stuff. Well, yeah, he's on the roster to go up on one of their flights. Yeah. But there you go. They, so they are kind of making it as a bonus available to some of their gifted employees. And uh, yeah, so that's another avenue. But I, I do believe that it's going to become more and more common, just like air travel was. Well, Victor, thank you so much for walking us through this day, this magical day that you had. The first person I've been able to talk to at length and hear all about it from the inside. And I'm delighted. I, I wondered, frankly, if all the other things you've done, climb the seven summits, ski across the poles, dive to the bottom of the ocean in all five oceans, you've been the guy in the middle really doing it, right? I mean, no one climbs Everest for you. You climb it. Your solo dives and limiting factor, it's all you. And I was curious whether just being the potato bag, the role that you had on Blue Origin would in any way diminish the experience for you. And it clearly hasn't. And I'm delighted that that's true. <laughs> no, not in the slightest. In fact, you know, haters are going to hate and people say, oh, you're, you're just a space tourist. And I say, why do you even say just? And why do you, why do you use the even pejorative term of a space tourist? It, not that I care what, what people really do or say. For me, it was an extraordinary experience. And I guarantee you 100% any individual that would not be overjoyed to go into space unless they were terrified of heights or just whatever would change their mind <laughs> if they had the experience that I had and they would not call it something derogatory. They would view it as a contribution to a long-term future for getting more people into space and living and working in space. And that's the mission of Blue Origin as, as well as the other rocket companies that are doing such great work to get us up there. Although I will say, you know, one thing that we haven't talked about is just the descent. I mean, that was, that was, that was in some respects yeah. even more intense than the ascent. Well, tell me because, about it. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, so, you know, we're having a great old time bopping around in zero G looking at this incredible view. And then that, you know, the warning goes off saying, okay, get back in your seats. And it's kind of a firm communication from the ground because we hadn't really felt it before we trained for it. 
in 1G on earth, but okay, you know, get in your couch. And then sure enough, you strap in. I, right when that clicked on my seatbelt, you started feeling the Gs and it wasn't, you know, it was 1G, 2G, 3. I mean, we got to like 5Gs, which is a lot of weight on you. And is this pushing you like in a roller coaster, pushing your head down or is it pushing your chest back? Well, uh, Blue did a great job designing the couches where it was over the whole body. And I think they, they wanted to make sure that it was easy. And even if you were not in the right position, you'd be pushed into the right position. Okay. So it's a great human factors engineering that they did. And then uh, the attitude control rockets keep kicking off. Like it's like, and it's keeping the capsule in the right orientation for reentry. And then, of course, you know, you're just falling through the atmosphere. <laughs> and so you're waiting for the sound and the jolt of the drogue parachutes to come out. And there were three parachutes on the capsule. And they said, you know, you can lose one and it's no problem. Two and, you know, you'll get down, but it's going to be rough on landing. Uh, three, of course, you know, that's a no go. And uh, so you're just waiting. You're for the... still dropping, but it's not going to oh, be yeah. it's not oh, going to yeah. be a landing. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to be a landing. It's going to be, let's just say, a very, very rapid descent. So, you know, then eventually you start seeing, you know, normal atmosphere and then the drogue chutes pop off. You're like, ah, oh, the parachutes are opening. Then you're kind of trying to feel how many. <laughs> okay, there were three. And then uh, and they tell you, you know, three good chutes. And, they're like, and then it's just like you're floating. Uh, and you're just enjoying the view, spinning a little bit, seeing the beautiful West Texas countryside. And you just realize what's happened and you just feel this incredible calm. And then you see the ground getting closer and closer and closer. And then right before you touch the ground, the retros go off and they cushion landing. And we skidded a little bit, you know, a couple of meters. Hmm. So it was like, you know, it was a, it was a thump and a, and a, and a drag. And then, of course, the uh, the so-called seventh crew member, the member of Blue Origin that trained us, he ran around the capsule getting a thumbs up from all of us, making sure we were all okay. And then their job at that point was to get us out of that as quickly as possible because we still had that you know 9G booster rocket in the center of the capsule yeah. <laughs> that they wanted to get us away from. And uh, then it was just a big party. You know, My sister came and met me, and she knew that had been a lifelong dream since I was a tiny boy. And we had all of our flags, we were there were pictures, and the whole blue team was there. It was just one of the greatest moments of my life, just coming out of that capsule with all my friends, my family, and the blue team. It was just, it was just awesome. It was almost like it was like one of the moments where you just kind of like, okay, I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm good you to can, go now. You can take me now. <laughs> yeah, you can take me now. I'm good. <laughs> Well, I am so delighted for you and look forward to the next time that you're up in my neck of the woods for flight training and we can commiserate and share some more stories together. But thank you so much for making time to come back on the podcast for round two and tell us about your grand adventure. Absolutely. I'll invite you to the next blue launch and uh, maybe we can meet in Dallas and we can have a flight out to West Texas and then uh, you can regale the new astronauts with all of your stories. I know they would love to have you. Yes, please. Just say when. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. All right, Victor. Thank you again so much. My pleasure. Thank you, Kathy. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com. This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most everywhere podcasts are found. To be the first to know when the next episode drops, head over to interastra.space.